Hello and welcome to Fork Tongues, conversations with foreigners living in France. I'm Derek Rawson, I'm from Australia, but I've been living in France for more than 10 years now, first in Paris and now in Poitiers. This is episode 15 of the Fork Tongues journey, but once again, it's not going to be your usual Fork Tongues episode. A year after I first spoke of the Fork Tongues transition period, I'm afraid to say that I'm still in the thick of it. Well, not exactly. I'm actually fairly confident that following this episode, Fork Tongues will return to regular, conversational programming. But this episode is something I've had in mind since early last year, and for a number of reasons, I don't want to let it go. One of the main reasons is that the author of the piece I'm going to read, Charles Simic, died in January this year, at the ripe old age of 84, with numerous poetry collections and awards under his belt. So it feels right to offer this small homage to him here on Fork Tongues. The theme this time is not French food, but another subject close to my heart and close to my experience and love of French culture. Paris and the movies, specifically American film noir. The piece is titled With Jean Tierney in Paris and comes from a book of film appreciation edited by Luc Sant, who I believe is now Lucy Sant, and Melissa Holbrook Pearson and published by Granta in 2000. It's called OKU Mugs, Writers on Movie Actors, a great name in my opinion. I should state up front that while I own the book, I don't own the rights. So I hope everyone will accept, just like last time, that my reading is for educational purposes only. So please, come with me and spend a moment with Charles Simic and, of course, Jean Tierney. With Jean Tierney in Paris by Charles Simic it's 1953. I'm a 15-year-old immigrant living in Paris. I hate school, the teachers can't bear the sight of me, and are most likely delighted when I stay away. I'm flunking every subject except for art, where I have a passing grade. I don't speak or write French very well, but the heartless bastards are not buying my excuse, so I skip classes every time I figure I can get away with it. I roam the streets until it's time to return home, Home is a hotel room where my mother sits waiting for me, with my younger brother who attends a different school. We have only one bed. They have it to themselves while I sleep on the floor, usually fully dressed because of the dampness. One needs a mattress, or so I discovered, to toss and turn sleepless and philosophize. On the hard floor, the minute I stare awake, I sit up rubbing my aching muscles and bones and think about school. Our math teacher, Monsieur Bertrand, often makes me stand in the corner for the slightest transgressions, as if I were a little kid. This is okay with me. I don't mind spending the entire day with my face to the wall. I can take my time reviewing some movie I've liked recently. Once a schoolmate had to tap me on a shoulder to bring me back from Los Angeles, since I had not heard the teacher order me back to my seat. 45 years later, I still dream about that corner. Everyone has gone home and left me. Night has fallen and I'm cooling my heels. When I peek over my shoulder, the six windows of the classroom are black and wet with rain. I do not know whether to leave or keep waiting for the teacher to return and give me the permission. It's a dream in which absolutely nothing happens, and from which I still awaken sad and full of fear. It would make sense to play hooky on warm, sunny days, but that's not what happens. The more miserable the weather, the more I want to cut and run. Monday mornings are the worst. To economize, I don't ride the metro. I hug the buildings as I make my way in the rain toward the Grand Boulevard, where there are arcades, department stores, lobbies of movie houses and other such spots 
where I can find shelter and pass the day. One time I even hid in the church. The lone old woman crossing herself gave me a worried look. She was afraid to kneel down and pray with her back turned to me. In a photo I have from this period, I'm wearing a baggy dark overcoat with a raised collar and a pair of lighter pants so wrinkled and frayed at the cuffs I'm surprised my mother let me go out looking like that. I have no hat and positively need a haircut, or at least a comb. From the stares I've gotten from salespeople, I know better than to set foot into finer stores. In spite of all that, my expression in the photograph is unmistakably cheerful. My feet and coat may be soaked, but I'm on my way to meet Jean Tierney. With the little moolah I usually had, I could not afford the first-run movie palaces. I frequented and knew well all the small, seedy movie houses in the city. My favourite haunts were the several cinemas on the Avenue de Terne, a hole in the wall on Avenue de la Grande Armée where they showed only westerns, the theatres off Boulevard Saint-Michel in the Latin Quarter where Sorbonne students went to Nick, and Cinema McMahon on the avenue of the same name where I saw Singing in the Rain a dozen times. My rule was, if it was an American movie, I'd most likely go in. My mother would drag us to French movies, but by myself I only recollect seeing the ones forbidden to minors where someone like Martine Carole, so I heard in school, bared her boobs. On rainy mornings, most cashiers didn't care how old I was. By today's standards, it was all pretty chaste. A quick peep was all one could hope for. Yes, there was more arse and tits in French flicks, but juvenile delinquents tend to be romantics at heart. Plus, I had become deeply enamoured of American noir films. I had no idea they were called that, of course. I had seen Asphalt Jungle and Key Largo in Belgrade, liked them tremendously, and sought their match. Every movie house in those days displayed stills of the films being shown, so one could get an idea. One peak and I knew, if there was a tough guy in a raincoat wielding a revolver, or some blonde puffing away perched on a bar stool, showing a lot of leg, I'd dash in, often in the middle of the film. I'd find myself right off on an empty street at night. A few silver clouds are visible above the dark skyscrapers, and a sinister parked car waits for me up ahead. Since I had no idea of the plot, such scenes stood out. I studied every face, every shadowy interior, as if it were a tarot card and I an apprentice fortune teller. I was intimate with Veronica Lake, Lauren Bacall, Ida Lupino, and even with Gloria Graham. But I never before laid eyes on Tierney until Laura. We met in an old, cavernous theatre on Avenue de Town, a dozen customers sitting far apart, the superfluous, familiar usherette who took me to my seat in the dark house and pocketed the tip. If I or anyone else didn't have the right amount, she was sure to return, point the flashlight at your face and chew you out, even in front of the full house, for being a cheapskate. I usually counted the tip over and over again before handing it to her, and even then I sat in terror for the first 15 minutes of the movie. Laura is a murder mystery that begins with a beautiful heroine already dead. An oil painting of the victim that hangs in her elegant apartment obsesses the detective investigating the case. He gradually falls in love with the dead woman, and so did I watching the movie. Laura, to everybody's surprise, reappears alive and is no less mysterious than she was during her disappearance. The other characters and the various turns of the plot meant much less to me. It's Tierney with her cool, dark-haired, slinky beauty that got to me that day. With her air of refinement and her upper-class accent, she came across as the soul of kindness and understanding. And yet, as much as I studied her 
she always remained for me a mask, a tantalizing enigma. Friends came to her at odd hours of day and night, one of the characters says in the film. In odd moments, she could have been an expensive call girl or a Chinese opium addict. I remember creeping up all the way to the front row to scrutinize her up close. I stayed for the next show and the next. I was in big trouble and still I was in no rush to leave my seat. It occurred to me that I could slip behind one of the heavy curtains, stay hidden throughout the night and resume watching her tomorrow at noon. I was sorely tempted. It was hard to exit so erotically charged into the dark, rainy afternoon. Guilty about missing school, knowing my mother was going crazy with worry. Death is the mother of beauty, the poet says. You bet. I was as scared to death of my inner turmoil as I was of meeting my mother. It took several days before I could see the movie once again. Then the program changed. There were no more Tierney films shown anywhere in Paris. Every day I checked the newspapers and weekly entertainment magazines to make sure, but had no luck. Since they did not list all the actors appearing in a movie, it was prudent to crisscross Paris and examine in person the posters of the films shown that week. In the meantime, like the film's title song, I couldn't get her out of my head. So what if the girls my age took no notice of me? I was strolling the streets arm in arm with my secret companion. Of course, she had no time for small talk. She let me soliloquize. I poured my heart out to her. But in what language? My English was poor, my French not much better, so it must have been a pigeon of the two with a few words of Serbo-Croatian thrown in. In any case, I also became fussy with my appearance. I greased my hair and I started wearing a bright red tie that I bought from some Arabs on Rue de Temple. My mother kept irritating me by maintaining that only communists wear red ties. All I needed, she said, was l'humanité, the party newspaper, sticking out of my pocket. I spent hours in front of the mirror. Sometimes Laura joined me there. I saw myself as a very young Richard Basehart, with that sensitive, intelligent mug of his. Then I'd catch my brother behind me trying to imitate my expression, and we would both burst out laughing, or my mother would begin to nag me about homework. Sitting around the hotel room with him on the floor playing with his cars, and my mother boiling another pot of noodles, cannot have been much fun for Miss Tierney. My complicated imaginary life reminds me now of Buster Keaton's in Sherlock Jr., where he plays a movie projectionist who dreams himself into a film shown on the screen. The audience watches him walk straight into the screen and become part of the action. Once there, he's at the mercy of the way the scenes are being cut. He enters a living room, the living room vaporizes and he finds himself at a front door. He knocks, but just then there's another cut, and the steps in the yard are gone. He tries to sit down, but finds himself amidst the rushing traffic with cars just barely missing him. Next he is on a hilltop, then in a forest between two lions. When they, too, vanish, he's in a desert, about to be run down by a train. Next he's on a rock in the sea. He dives into the waves, but ends up in a snowbank. He extricates himself and is back in the front yard where it all started. Inside the house, a man and a woman are still smooching. That's how it was with Tierney and me. We were playing hide-and-seek between dream and reality. One minute, I was having lunch with her at the Algonquin. The next, we were standing outside a jazz club on Rue Saint-André, listening to Don Bias play Laura through the half-open door. Even if I had had the money, they would not have let me in, especially talking to myself like that. Dames are always pulling a switch on you, Dana Andrews, who plays the detective assigned to the case, confided to me. I could readily agree with that. 
To complicate matters even further, I finally saw another teeny movie. It was called Leave Her to Heaven, and it was dubbed. She was babbling in French. I forgot to mention earlier that I had an aversion for dubbed films. Always went exclusively to what was known as VO, original version. But in my rush to see my dreamboat, I failed to notice the flaw. In this film, Mademoiselle is a murderess and a suicide. We meet her first in the club car of a train. She has dozed off and the book she was reading has slid off her knees, so Cornell Wilde runs over to pick it up. She comes to, snazzy as ever, thanks him in that calm, whispery voice of hers, and he's hooked. The film is in colour, so I learn her eyes are blue. She has the habit of drawing close to the person she's talking to, as if she were nearsighted or a bit hard of hearing. I find this very disconcerting. The chump who retrieved the book is a writer, actually the author of the book she was reading. Tiani plays a woman who, after they are married, is jealous of everyone and everything, including her husband spending hours at the typewriter away from her. Even his crippled teenage brother is a rival, so one day she takes him out in a rowboat on a lake, urges him to swim a good distance, and when he begins to flail and call for help, she stops rowing, calmly reaches over, puts on her sunglasses and watches him drown. Even more vile is a beach scene following the death of her unborn son, which she contrives by intentionally falling down a flight of stairs. Stunning in a tight red bathing suit, she frolics in the surf, runs up to towel herself, smiling and making me quake in my seat. This woman is a handful, I realised. No more sunset walks by the Seine for us, or cow-eyed holding of hands in Luxembourg Park. It was no joke having a felon, even for an imaginary friend. What a good time she was having being bad. How confusing it all was. My head was telling me one thing while my crotch muttered something else. I walked out of the theatre dazed, only to be blinded further by the sunlight. I remember I had to shelter my eyes to make my way slowly toward the metro on Place Saint-Michel. It was the first truly warm spring day. Everywhere, so I noted squinting, there were young women fleeting about, lightly dressed, one or two of whom I even followed a little way until they vanished in the afternoon crowd. So I hope you enjoyed this short moment in time with Jean Tierney and Charles Simic. If you can get your hands on a copy of the book, I highly recommend it. There are other great pieces on the likes of Robert Mitchum, Warren Oates, Jeanne Marot, by writers like Ron Paget, who wrote the poems for Jim Jarmusch's film Patterson, which I love, Siri Hustved, and Chris Ofat. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It also has a great photo of Jean Tierney to accompany Charles Simic's piece. It shows her, gorgeous as ever, a large trench coat draped over her shoulders, her hands cradling a shotgun, its two long dark barrels pointing out from between the folds of fabric. A handful indeed. I'm Derek Rawson, and this is Fork Tongues. Thanks for listening. Until next time.